might be on your Bible to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The Lord bless us by His holy word. Let's go to Our Father, as we come this morning to your house and your invitation, we offer ourselves through prayers and through the singing of your praises. And we offer ourselves now by the giving of our ears, our minds, and our hearts. And may we do so with an expectancy based on your promise. That your word, which you have given to us for our instruction, our building together, and the building up, never comes back empty. So may you use it now to strengthen, to renew, to comfort, to direct, and to mold us together. May you, by your spirit, be work with us. That after this Time is done, the seed being planted, and you be pleased with the fruit that comes from your word. We pray your glory and our joy through Christ. Amen. Mark Twain once scripts, I sometimes wonder whether the world is run by smart people who are just putting us on. Or by imbeciles who are who really need it. For some reason that statement came to mind recently as I've been watching the election proceedings. <laughs> it just never ceases to amaze me. It's 15 months away, almost 15 months away, and if you think the media thinks we are in mid-season, at least the campaigns are in mid-season form. People hanging on every single word as if today will be the defining moment for the future of our nation. And it was some time ago that I realized that almost every campaign, no matter how they slice it, no matter what face they put on it, it seems to come down to really the same question asked in one of two ways. When there's an incumbent or somebody connected to an incumbent, the question is, are you better off than you were before this guy or this woman showed up? When there is no woman or man that is an incumbent, then the question is this, are you as well off as you would like to be? And I believe that the candidates all understand that the instinctive reaction for a certain percentage of people is always to say, no, I'm not as well off as I was, or I'm not as well off as I would like to be, and the candidates are, are banking on the fact that we will, uh, in our discontent, uh, therefore turn to whatever promises they make, whatever policies they propose, and hope that we will therefore prove that, be able to experience whatever it is that we are looking for. 
Now you may be one of those people who would answer uh, the question, no, you're not as well off as you've been, or you're not as well off as you would like to be. And so you are someone who, in that sense, is in need of help. Even if you're somebody who right now is prospering, things have never been better, or at least you realize that you're better than you deserve, um, it's not, doesn't take too long to either look around you, people you care about, and realize there are a lot of people who are hurt, or to look too far in the past to realize that you've experienced things in this life that have caused great pain from which you needed relief and comfort. Or even looking ahead, not knowing what the future brings, needing relief and comfort from our peers. Regardless of who we are, one thing that is common for all of us who are gathered here today, whether we are believers in God, in the person of Christ, or whether we are somebody who is uh, searching, or whether you're somebody who's here just humoring somebody else, is that we all or a need of comfort from time to time, and we need, therefore, to know where we can find comfort and strength and renewal. I suspect there may not be any better place in all the scriptures than Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 is loaded in, in terms of comfort. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said of Isaiah 40, should be recognized as one of the most eloquent and moving chapters of the entire Bible. Another New Testament scholar, Old Testament scholar, just said that we need to recognize that Isaiah 40 is the equivalent to Romans 8 in the New Testament. For those of you who are not, don't speak, read the Bible speak. Romans 8 is where there's a promise that God has not abandoned us, that everything that we're enduring, whether it's good or whether it's bad, God is working it out for the good of those who are his people. And so that scholar is claiming that Isaiah 40, we, in this message that is given to us in this chapter, is the same kind of perspective to realize that while we are experiencing difficulties, nevertheless, it's not outside of God's purview. And we are able to draw comfort. This morning, I want, as we look at this passage, we begin, there are three things that I want us to consider as we look at this passage, or at least three things that, uh, that seem to us. Uh, uh, strike out, uh, stand out in me. The first is this, is a simply as a reminder, as I've already said, is that at one time or another, all of us are in need of being comfortable. Isaiah 40 is aimed at the people of God, of the divine people. It's aimed at people who are like us, but who are right now very weak, very weary, and in despair. Even though the two passages we just read, two, two verses that we just read, we realize this is a people who has just come through war that God is speaking to. And the effects of war has, has warmed them down. And it's a people who is coming to grips with the reality and the weight of their own sin and the consequences that their own sin brings upon, upon them. Isaiah, as he's writing, it's interesting, particularly here, Isaiah, as he's writing this letter, he's writing in the 8th century BC. The first 39 chapters of this long book are written from, uh, from God through Isaiah to his people that say, look, you've been in rebellion, and here's the consequence of your rebellion. Then in chapter 40, where we are here right now, 
through chapter 55, there's a shift of years. And still Isaiah, still recording and writing at the same time. But God now is shifting for a future time. Because the consequence has been promised is God's people who are living in rebellion one day would be driven out in exile. And so even in advance, God is writing to them in these chapters to the people who one day will be in exile so that they will know that God has not abandoned them. That God is still present with them, and that one day they would be restored. And so, what we're looking at here, in one sense, is a prophecy. People might have, the first people who received it might have not thought a lot of it, other than you know, the weight of the judgment that is pronounced in the first chapters. But it's really an amazing thing when you're able to look back and see how history has unfolded. God cared enough about these people, not only to tell them what was going to happen, but to tell them in advance the comfort that he wanted to bring to them. And that's what he is speaking here. In these passages, he's speaking in advance, but then later on, when they are actually in exile, they have this word from God, that they knew that God was in control of all things, predicted, and he's saying, these are words intended to come. And through these words, God also speaks words to bring comfort to us, because we're reminded what God is like, we're reminded of the comfort that he brings. He's speaking to people like us, and in one sense, he's speaking to us. And, and he's aware of the difficulties we experience in this life. We, it's not like anything that comes in the news is a surprise to God. It's not like anything that we do or fail to do is a surprise to God. God is well aware. And he knows that suffering exists in this world. He knows that his people sometimes feel very weak, very distressed, very discouraged, and defeated. I mean, he knows that we are a weak and frail people. And some of you are experiencing that, that full weight in, in your life right now. And the thing that is amazing, that makes matters worse for us, is that at times where we feel the most discouraged, the most defeated, it's the time that our, at the time of our greatest stress is the time that we are most prone to tune out the words that come from the God gives to us. The psalmist in Psalm 77 expresses it this way. The day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. In other words, He's so in need of God that he's doing nothing else. But my soul refuses to help. In other words, here's a picture of many of us when we are most in distress, we are most in need, and we are crying out to God. And even though we know who God is, and we know the promises of God, which is why we're reaching out to him in the first place, we just don't listen, and we don't comprehend, and we don't apply the promises of God that will bring us comfort. One thing that I find helpful, at least for me, when I think about that, or when I look back and I realize that I've gone through a season like that, that I didn't experience the comfort of God because I can hear the word and apply it to my heart, is that it's a very common thing. I love the way John Bunyan illustrates it in the Pilgrim's Progress. He talks about 
Uh, sometimes we find ourselves in, in a swamp of despair. That we are so burdened that we can't discern God's instruction. We can't hear God's encouragement. Talks about being on the hill of difficulty. Things that just seem so weary that we don't think that we can go on. If you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, the thing that is amazing to me is that Christian, who's the primary character in this book, has come to the cross where the burdens of us have been unleashed from him. And it's as soon as he has the burdens have fallen off of his back like a backhand, then he comes to the hill of his skin. So the Christian life is no different than life in another way, that we're not promised that we aren't going to have difficulties and hardships and feel weary once we've come to Christ. In fact, we continue to have those. The Pilgrim's Progress is just filled with incredible images of things that we all experience. I mean, consider some of the, the things that you, you encounter here on the Christian Encounter Fair. The Valley of Humility, which is a reminder of our, our sin and our guilt. And the Valley of the Shadow of Death, where Christian feels very alone. Or Doubting Castle. Which I read recently, something of Charles Spurgeon, who said he wasn't aware when he read Pilgrim's Progress, but he's very keenly aware to the point that he was writing. But basically said, I wasn't aware that Doubting Castle had dungeons where it would keep us there. Many of us are experiencing all of these same things. If you've not read Pilgrim's Progress, I would suggest buy it, read it. If you have children, read it to your children. Have them read that. It's far better than the Chronicles of Narnia and getting myself in trouble. Better than Lewis and anything else. But you know what? I'm going to tell you about that because I don't want to pay. And if you don't want to read it, try the movie. There's actually a, a contemporary version and the language is, is, is updated. And so in an hour and a half, but the imagery is absolutely incredible. It's a reminder, a beautiful picture of just the difficulty of this life. But the reason it's beautiful is because it's a reminder that God is there with us always. But it, the reason it's important is to understand, one, I, I don't know, it's just because I, I find, you know, I like everything when I'm in this room. But I know that it's a common thing, but I also realize that it's not just me. Not that I wish that it upon you, but just as I hope there's hope, and I know there's hope for you, that I, I desire that for me as well. But I've really come to realize that much of my own disillusionment and much of my own discouragement comes when my experience is different than what I expected. Or than what I think uh, I, I um, should, should experience. When I look in this particular passage, I'm reminded of the simple truth is that we all are in need of comfort at one time or another. God is speaking to people who are in need of comfort. Not only is it a reminder that we all are in need of comfort, but I look at this passage and it seems to me that there's a revelation. It reveals that God demonstrates his love to us by the commitment that he has to comforting his own people. So Isaiah 40 is not only written uh, to people who are in need of comfort, but it is a clear expression of the affection and the love that God has for people who are lacking. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her. Verse 1, we, that we, we see what God is doing is he's summoning the message to go and speak these words of comfort to his people. I 
And so we see the character of God. God wants them to not only feel comforted, but he wants them to hear his message of truth, which is the means by which they will experience comfort. And it's really quite amazing to me when you consider the people to whom he told. These are people who rebelled against him. Not all rebellions are armed. These are people who continue to claim to be belong to God, that God was their God. But they had ignored him and they'd gone their own way. Their rebellion was not to reject God, but to just assume and to ignore him. Essentially, what the people had done at that point was they extended the middle finger toward God and said, you know, we know that you gave us everything, but I want what I want. And I'm going to do what I want. And now they're experiencing the consequences of the rebellion that they had. And God is saying to this people, I know comfort. Comfort, comfort my people. It's astonishing. You know what I would expect? What I would probably say is, judge, judge my people, not comfort, comfort, condemn, condemn my people. I mean, God was suffering their insubordinates, their ugliness for a long time. And finally, it comes to culmination. God speaks to these people, having brought discipline to them, having brought judgment but no condemnation. What's the difference? Judgment is simply a discipline that takes place. Condemnation means it's over. There's no hope. God never speaks condemnation to his people. He speaks these words of comfort. It's the God of the Son. But I also want you to notice this is God is speaking words of comfort. And that's the message he's also sending. Comfort, comfort my people. That's the that's the summoning of, of the messengers going to go. And now here's the instruction. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and cry to her. And then the declarations of God's truth. When we want comfort, we're looking for something to numb the pain, ease it. One of the reasons that there are so many different kinds of addiction is we can somehow not have to deal with the reality that we're experiencing. Some people even in the church, they're what I call experienced junkies. They are looking for some spiritual high, some spiritual experience, some amazing sign, and if they can experience whatever that is, then they think that somehow they'll have the comfort or the purpose that God intends for them. I think it's significant here that God is saying, comfort my people, speak to them. What do you do with speaking? Is you offer words. God was speaking words that would bring comfort, and God speaks to us with words that bring comfort as well. In fact, the entire Bible is, 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 a, is a picture of, or is an expression of the comfort that, that God has given to us. Romans 15 4 says this For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, when we are in need, not only tells us what to do, but it brings us encouragement. And because of those things, it brings hope. Hope is the antidote to fear of being discomforted, being in pain. 
And all of the scripture is necessary. All the scripture is given. The words of God that speak to us. But what we need to be able to do is to learn how to dig in and to learn. And the image that came to my mind, I was thinking about this, is from the old movie, one of the Superman movies. I don't know if it was Superman 2 or 3 or 74 or whatever it was, but it was one of the Superman movies where Clark Kent, Superman, whichever identity book, and he goes to, I guess, this Arctic ice house that was set up by his biological father. And there he is able to plug in some ice chip and then hear all the words of wisdom that are given to him. He is able to go and ask questions and being given uh, given a perspective. And he's able to uh, to glean and to benefit uh, from uh, the wisdom of his father. Well, our father has given us this word, and there's a sense in which we also need to be able to plug into it. And when we plug into it, we find the answers, we find the direction, we find the instruction, we find the comfort that we all are in need of. We also need to realize that it's not a magical thing. It's not just an instantaneous thing that we go and we just plug into it, that we are much better served when we make this more like a diet and an exercise routine than a Google search. In other words, when we are regularly feeding on it, and not necessarily knowing what benefit we're receiving from it, but we are studying, we're meditating, and we're thinking about it, and we don't necessarily walk away feeling like we've been changed. But we'll be given strength. We'll be given purpose and understanding and knowledge that will enable us in times when we are uncertain and unstable in need of comfort. Too often, as Christians, we go through the word and we look for the answer just at the moment of our difficulty, and we want that right word. And many times we find it. So often, it just doesn't seem to be enough. It needs to be a regular practice of hearing the word of God so that we have the understanding, so that when we are in need, the words will speak most loudly to us. We see that this is a beautiful passage that reminds us that we're all in need of comforting. And it reveals to us that God's affection for us is demonstrated in the fact that he's committed to comforting his people, even his wayward people. And the last thing that we see, I think, here is the reflection or, or an understanding, well, the reality, that God comforts us by reminding us of the truths of the gospel. There is gospel hope in, in these two verses. There's two distinct truths. The first truth that we need to glean from this is you who belong to God belong to God now and forever. Think about the words that are here that God is speaking. Comfort, comfort. My people says your God. These are possessive words. These indicate a relationship, an exchange. These are, are words that that are very personal. These are the same words that are used in reflection of a marriage. That we no longer belong to ourselves, but the one to whom we have made covenant with. God who has entered into covenant with us doesn't forsake that. And here he's speaking of his people who he spent 39 chapters dictating or inspiring Isaiah to be able to write and say, look, you have not ignored the way that you have ignored me. And there's a consequence for your violation of the covenant, and you're going to experience that. And yet we find the next 
portion of the scripture, this same book, same writer, and saying, but it doesn't mean I don't love you. It doesn't mean that I'm going to forsake you. Because what I brought together, let no one tear apart. You are my people. You will always be my people. And because you are my people, I love you, and I will bring you comfort. We see even in his instruction here, not just the, the possessive words, but the word Jerusalem here. It's easy to overlook. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Let me back up again for a second. Again, as I said a little while ago, Isaiah was writing this in about 800 BC, but the intent was for it to be a prophecy that would really mean something about 150, 200 years later, when the people to whom this word was given found themselves losing a battle and now being exiled and found themselves in slavery, slavery in Babylon. When they were reading this word, when they were receiving this word, they were a long ways from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was done. It was dead to them. And yet God is speaking to them as Jerusalem. He's reminding them of who they really are, that they are his people. And he continues to, to use the imagery and the language and the title that would have been their identity before. And in so doing, he's reminding them not only who they are, but he's, he's pointing to them and giving them reason to know that they will have hope for a future because he's reminding them he's in control, and then he does tell them and reveals in this book that one day they would be restored, and they would go back even into Jerusalem. The recognition of calling them uh, Jerusalem here is really unlike even that whole going back to the Superman thing when you know, Father Carlel was refers to his son not as Clark. Okay, well, now you're called Clark with the family language and everything now. Um, but he, he, against Father Carlel, refers to his son as Carlel. I have no idea what the name means because they're not Hebrew, but uh, but there is a significance in that. Who you are doesn't change, regardless of your circumstances. And sometimes knowing who we are and whose we are, and the promise of the one who is in control, is what brings us the hope that we have. He's saying, you're my people. You will always be my people. We, standing on this side of history, Ask ourselves, how is it that we became his people? Well, because he purchased us by the blood of the Son of the cross. We are his people every much, every bit as much as the people who he wanted to as his people. And we need to realize there is nothing more comforting than the God who is, who knows you, who is already aware of his doubtful says, you're mine, and I won't forsake you, and I won't leave you. Whatever it is you're experiencing right now, you're not alone, because God is aware, and God is at work, and God says, he's working now. We also see not only that you are my people, that you belong to God now and forever, but we also see another gospel truth, which is this, is that you have been forgiven of all of your sins. Stated in a couple of different ways in verse 2, and I suspect the reason that it's stated in a couple of different ways is because, you know, we need to be reminded. He doesn't tell us once, he tells us over and over again. And so he's restating 
we are slow, quick to forget and slow to remind ourselves, believe, appropriate the promise of the forgiveness of our sin. But here's what God wants to cleanse you. When you're speaking tenderly to Jerusalem, crying to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. Suffering that brought about the warfare, or the sin that brought about the suffering in the warfare, for which you honor the prejudgment, has now been pardoned. And then it says, She had, tell them that they have received, tell her she has received from the Lord's hand double for all their sins. At first glance, for me, I look at that and think that doesn't sound like a, a good thing. In other words, if I sin against God, He's going to pay me back number. But clearly, that's inconsistent with what this message. That's not a particularly comforting word. Comfort, comfort my people. Tell them what they've done; they got coming back. That's not what this is saying. But it's pointing to something else. The sins have been forgiven. Not simply God saying, "Ah, forget it; it doesn't matter." But the sins have been forgiven. Because somebody else has paid. And we have been credited not only as forgiven, but credited with his righteousness. We receive two blessings, two benefits in response to our sin. Simply because God has expressed his love to us. Isaiah, for anyone who may think that I'm just kind of reaching. Isaiah and Isaiah 53, and I'm going to turn there now and invite you to do the same. He very clearly illustrates to us how it is that our sins have been forgiven. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. But he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, the very thing that we need when we are asking for comfort. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned, everyone, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and he opened out his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. The sheep that is before a sure or silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for the generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, when it is made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And it was the Lord's love to crush him. He was put equal in the grief. When his soul makes an offering for forgiveness, 
he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Isaiah was very clear. This is not something that came along later, but Isaiah, when he was standing, right at the same time, moving and shifting gears, people knowing the judgment that they deserve, that there is no condemnation. Now experiencing the weight of their judgment, feeling the difficulties of it, or the consequences, both of life and of their behavior. God says, bring them comfort. Their sins are forgiven. You want to know how? I put them on someone else. You're here in need of comfort today. I can't change your circumstances. But I can point you to the truths that you're not alone. That one way or another, at one time or another, we are all going to be in need. That our God who cares and is capable has accomplished what is necessary to let you know that what you are experiencing is not because you have been rejected by God and you now have to be on your own. It's part one. Because you know that God cares, you can volunteer to you. Without fear, bear comes the comfort. Lawless expression. You were one who was here and things are fine. Keep this in mind for when you're not. Share this reality with someone who's struggling. Because God's word is given as the foundation upon which all of our hope and comfort is to be The truth of who God is and what he has done is that case. May we not forget. May we always remember. And may we realize that God promises that those who are his a joy that may, may, not, may not make sense, but is very real. And it is for us. Father, we do come with thanksgiving to you for this word and words of comfort. To know that we have never been abandoned, regardless of the guilt that we feel. Father, I pray that you would impress this not only upon our minds that we might know, but our hearts that we might expect. Set us free from the weight that seems to overwhelm. Set us free that we might experience joy in Christ, regardless of circumstances. Lord, this is your promise. This is what we've experienced. This is our need. So we come not only praying that you will, but giving thanks that you have done this for us. Our praise thanks be to you, our God. Our Father, through Jesus Christ.